If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, Choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The French Revolution of 1789 is one of the defining events of world history. Its origins have been poured over for more than two centuries. But in his new book, Harvard professor Robert Danton offers a fresh perspective, focusing on the people of Paris in the 40 years that preceded the storming of the Bastille. As he explains to Rob Attar, this was an age of war, royal scandal, financial crisis and scientific wonder. Bob, your book explores the run-up to the French Revolution in the year 1748, So I wonder, why have you chosen to focus on this 40-year period in particular? These are the 40 crucial years before the revolution began, of course. 1748 in itself makes an excellent starting point, because that's when the War of the Austrian Succession came to an end. Now, what I'm talking about is popular understanding of events and news. Most people didn't have a very clear idea of geography in Paris, but they knew that they had been involved for eight years in a major war. And so I begin by trying to explain war and peace as it was understood by ordinary people, I mean, sophisticates and 
cafes, but also working people, artisans and shopkeepers. So 1848 is the beginning of a lot of questioning of basic assumptions by Parisians. And I discuss the end of the war and the way that end was understood at the street level. And for any listeners who aren't aware of the ins and outs of the war, the Austrian succession, how does that end for France? Most people knew the war mainly by having to pay heavier taxes, the taxes on ordinary articles of consumption and a, a serious quasi-income tax. So they felt the weight of the war very strongly. Some people actually followed events especially in what in the Austrian Netherlands, where there were a series of sieges and battles, and little by little the French advanced and actually conquered more land than Louis XIV had conquered in the 17th century. So there was a sense of success but frustration at a more difficult life. And then when the peace came, the French returned all that conquered territory, and the Parisians couldn't understand it. There was a good reason for it, of course, because Britain had made enormous conquests in the colonies, but that was a remote world overseas to most Parisians, and they thought that after a great deal of taxation, loss of life, that the French had won the war and lost the peace. So that's an interesting point you raise there, because obviously France is an imperial power at this time. But for people living in Paris, is it the events on the European mainland that matter more than what's going on in the colonies? Yes, absolutely. It's true that they began putting sugar into coffee, those who could afford it. And the sugar came from overseas in the terrible slave colonies of the Caribbean. But for most of them, that war was a remote and almost unreal series of events. The way they knew about the peace is fascinating because most of them didn't read. There was a fairly high rate of literacy among adult males, but the way the peace was actually published was not the text of the treaty that ended it, the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle itself, but a publication. It was known as a publication, which actually was a great parade of about 800 people for a full day stopping at many different points of the city of Paris. The parade included men on horses, everyone dressed up, a series of marching bands. And when it would make a stop, the bands would play, the trumpets would sound, the drums would roll, and then a royal servant would actually read out not the terms of the treaty, but the fact that the war had come to an end and there would be no more hostilities. And then there would be, after this procession, which really was visible to virtually everyone in Paris, uh, there would be a celebration. Now, the celebrations were fascinating events, always involved giving uh, free sausage, bread and wine and free dancing with orchestras at different parts of Paris. But then it all came to a climax with fireworks. And the Parisians loved fireworks in the 18th century. They were a different kind of fireworks than we have today. But the fireworks to celebrate the peace of 1748 were a dud. They got rained out and there was an attempt to have a spectacular 
display, but it simply didn't work. Everyone uh, walked home, but they had gathered in the Place de Grève, and when they started to disperse, some people tripped, others fell over them, there was a sort of stampede, and a lot of people were trampled to death. So afterwards, people said, this peace has been a disaster. We won the war, we lost the peace, look what happened. A kind of massacre in the center of Paris. Market women, when they got in fights and wanted to insult one another, said, you are as stupid as the peace. So it's an interesting example of how an event is perceived and how that information spreads among the common people, not just the elite. And how do we know nowadays what these popular reactions were to these events? What sources are you drawing on to get this information? Well, that's a key question, of course. We didn't have opinion surveys or anything like that. But there are wonderful diaries that are available. There's a great deal of correspondence. And there are police reports because the police of Paris were very sophisticated. They had, it said, something like 3,000 spies who were regularly giving reports about what people say in cafes and marketplaces and so on. In fact, some of the reports are written in dialogue form. Now, we can't assume that these were the very words that people exchanged, but it's not far from that. So the sources are exceptionally rich. I've had to choose among them. Uh, Some are richer than others. You have to allow for a bias built into them. But I think the wealth of the documentation is so great that we can actually follow not just events, but the perception of events throughout this 40-year period. It's only a few years after the War of Austrian Succession that there's another major conflict breaks out in the Seven Years' War. How does that play out in the streets of Paris? The Seven Years' War, of course, occurred on an even larger scale. At first, it wasn't called the Seven Years' War because people didn't know how long it would last. They didn't know what the stakes were. The fighting on the continent took place farther away in central Germany, most of it. There were a series of terrible defeats for the French forces. But more important, uh, this is when the British colonial system really was established. Uh, The superiority of Britain as a naval power was confirmed. And France lost an empire, including a big chunk of India. So it was a big setback for the French. But for the common people of Paris, it meant especially higher taxation. So the war comes to an end in 1763. You get two taxes called vingtième, and they hit people very hard. So from this point on, the fiscal pressure is enormous, and people feel it in their everyday lives because uh, the price of bread is going up, and uh, it's much harder just to get through. Again, the same parade, the same ceremony uh, took place. So you've got 800 or more people parading through the streets of Paris, stopping with bugle calls to announce the peace. But uh, the police reported that no one, after the announcements, the so-called publication, cried, Vive le Roi. The 
a sense of deception, disappointment, and suffering was tremendous after the Seven Years' War. And it would lead, because of primarily of the fiscal pressure, to a major political crisis that occurred in 1770 to 71. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And you just mentioned there the idea of the French monarch and the period your book covers spans the reigns of Louis XV and Louis XVI. What sense do you get of how popular they were among the ordinary people? Well, of course, in principle, that's very hard to measure. As I said, there are no uh, opinion surveys, but the police reports are very clear. There were a series of incidents to indicate what popular attitudes were. In a way, the most spectacular incident occurred in 1750 because a rumor spread that children were being kidnapped in the streets of Paris and kept by the police in separate prisons from which they would eventually be shipped to Mississippi and work in supposed uh, silk factories. They didn't exist, of course, but the children actually did disappear. A royal order went out to arrest street urchins that were troubling people, but the police arrested not just children who were begging, but also the children of artisans and shopkeepers, 
And in some cases, when these young people were being carried off in carriages by the police, they screamed. People ran out of shops, stopped the carriages, rescued the children. And a series of incidents like this took place, which came to a climax in the spring of, of 1750, when a mob attacked an agent of the police who was involved in these kidnappings, killed him, dropped his body in front of the residence of the head of the police force, and actually seized control of Paris for a while. It was a spectacular uprising. And what's interesting when studied in retrospect is the way people made sense of it. Because children really had been kidnapped, but what the Parisians said was they were kidnapped in order to make a bloodbath for a prince of the blood who was suffering from some exotic illness such as leprosy. Rumors like this had circulated and often were connected with the so-called massacre of the innocents under Herod in the Bible. And these rumors reached Louis XV. He was horrified and he said that he would cease coming to Paris virtually altogether because the Parisians thought of him as a Herod. And he had a special road built so that he wouldn't have to go through Paris when he traveled from uh, Versailles to Compiègne. So that's just one example of the loss of contact between the people of Paris and the king. And beyond the monarchy itself, what kind of tensions were there between what you might call the common people and the aristocracy at this time? I found signs of resentment about aristocratic privileges, but not as many as I expected. What I did find was a huge resentment of the court aristocracy, the so-called les grands, the great figures of Versailles, who were really dominating the country and dominating the governments because there's a great deal of politicking that takes place at court, and that ultimately determines who is running the government. So instead of a, a great surge of aristocratic feeling, what I have discovered is a, an enormous resentment of les grands, the great people at top, on the part of les petits, the small people, sometimes called the menu peuple, or small people of Paris. And that feeds into a conviction that the monarchy has generated into a despotism. And the despotism is in the hands of a corrupt court uh, and ministers who are wicked. So there's a, a whole series of rumors and songs and demonstrations about the evilness of the government that is dominating the French, the little people, as well as people in middle ranks, uh, and transforming the monarchy, in fact, into a despotism. So anti-despotism, rather than anti-aristocracy, is the main theme that I have discovered. I think nowadays we often, when we're thinking about the kind of the worst aspects of the French monarchy, the name Marie Antoinette comes up quite a lot. Was she part of this popular hostility to what they saw as despotic monarchs? Well, she certainly was, but not at first. When she first arrived, lots of rumours said she's wonderful, she's lovely, she's graceful, and she's natural. She has a kind of 
warmth that she exudes, contrary to the frigid quality and the established uh, etiquette of the court. So uh, she was at first seen very positively by the Parisians, but of course they didn't see her at all. She was married by a special ceremony in Vienna uh, in 1770, and she made her first entree into uh, Paris in 1773. So they didn't see her for quite a while. And that entree is typical of the of the way that events are sort of acted out and understood by people at the time. So a royal entree, like the uh, publication of pieces, is accompanied by festivity. And the festivity means that there's dancing with uh, orchestras or little bands in dozens of neighborhoods in Paris with free wine and sausage and bread. And then it was all to come to a climax with the fireworks in now the Place Louis XV, which is today the Place de la Concorde. Well, a huge crowd gathered for the fireworks, which again are a terrific uh, source of entertainment for people. And there was a competition actually among the masters of fireworks at this time. The master in Paris had planned a spectacular show. He'd built a huge platform, 35 feet high, that represented the temple of marriage. He was to set off fountains, fiery fountains and and uh, spin wheels at ground level, and it would all come to a climax with a huge rocket at the end. But at the very beginning, somehow the rocket was set off And instead of rising up into the sky, it set on fire this huge temple that he had built. And the whole thing went up in flames and collapsed at the very beginning. So it was a spectacular failure. And again, as the crowd tried to uh, disperse, people tripped up. They were trampled. And the police laid out 132 bodies in the Rue Royale near the uh, Place Louis XV. Rumors said that 3,000 people were killed, many drowned in the Seine, etc. It was a spectacular catastrophe. And for the following days, many people were heard saying, this shows how disastrous the marriage is. And it's a kind of prophecy of the catastrophes that will happen under the reign of Louis XVI once he becomes king. That's one example. I could give you many others. And it's certainly true that the Parisians developed a a very hostile attitude to Marie Antoinette, especially after the so-called affair of the diamond necklace, which we could discuss if you like. But there were many other episodes. And what I've tried to do is to collect all of the references to the rumors, to the songs, to the demonstrations of people that expressed these attitudes. Okay, I think you will have to tell us about the affair of the diamond necklace. I'm sure our listeners want to know about that. Well, it was a spectacular affair. It began uh, with the Cardinal de Rohan. Now, the Rohan family was a fabulously wealthy family, and the Cardinal had the highest ecclesiastical office at court. He was suddenly arrested Uh, in his full 
regalia right before he was to say a mass in Versailles and carried off to the Bastille. So imagine arresting a cardinal in Versailles in his full dress and taking him to the Bastille. It was a spectacular event. What was behind it? Well, Parisians started whispering, exchanging rumors and saying that this is something really big, but what is it? And it finally transpired, it's a complicated story, that Rouen had wanted to get back in the good grace of the queen, who detested him, as he knew it had to do with affairs in Vienna and a complicated story. But he wanted to win her protection and maybe even her love by giving her a spectacular present. And this was a diamond necklace that was said to be worth 1,700,000 livres. That's the currency of the time. Uh, it's it just a spectacular sum of money. A vast uh, plot was hatched by an adventuress who took a woman a prostitute from the Palais Royal, had her dressed up as the queen, arranged for a meeting between this fake queen at night in the gardens of Versailles and Rouen. And Rouen delivered the necklace. The prostitute mumbled a few words and then Rouen disappeared. Of course, the adventurous Madame Olival took apart the necklace, sold it for a fortune, and then an investigation took place which ultimately revealed the story behind it. But what really mattered was the notion that, as far as Parisians were concerned, it looked as though a cardinal of the church was attempting to seduce the queen of France in the gardens of Versailles at night. Nothing could be more damaging to the reputation of the queen. And all of the police reports after that say that Parisians are muttering unbelievable things about the sex life of the queen. That myth that she's a kind of sex-hungry and frustrated female grew and grew until in the French Revolution it reached extraordinary proportions so, yes, the attitude toward the queen is something that's, I think, fundamental in the delegitimation of the monarchy. And while this is all going on, another trend in these decades is what is often still called the Enlightenment. I know some scholars disagree with that, but this idea of scientific progress, intellectual progress, how far is that percolating down to the people of Paris? Well, a very good question and a very difficult one to answer. I mean, I've I've published a half dozen books uh, about the circulation of pamphlets of books, the book trade, the nature of the publishing industry, and so on, including a particular a book about the Encyclopédie, which is, in a way, the Bible of the French Enlightenment. But all of that raises a problem, because if you take the Encyclopédie, it's an enormous work, and beautiful uh, folio volumes, 17 folio volumes, that cost the equivalent of a lifetime's wages for a common laborer. So it's not as if everyone could buy the Encyclopédie or as if it were available everywhere. What really, I think, impressed them with the power of reason, a science, was something related to the Enlightenment, but actually fairly different. And that is the first balloon flights. Uh, 
So in 1783-84, for the first time, man conquers the air. The Montgolfier brothers developed a technique of setting a fire under hot air balloons, which then rose in the sky. And the first flight uh, manned by someone called Pilatre de Rosier was a spectacular event. It only went two and a half miles, but a balloon with two men in it crossed the Seine, and hundreds of people, thousands of people saw it. From that time on, the balloon flights were a tremendous craze. And now hundreds of thousands of people, virtually everyone in Paris, saw man fly. And this demonstrated to them that man's reason could conquer nature, could understand natural forces and put them to work. In fact, the attitude was so widespread that some priests said this is terrible because people are going to attribute the ascension of Christ to this kind of scientific energy. So you've got popularized science, which conveys the message of rationalism, the ability of man to conquer nature. And I I found many, many other examples of this. Animal magnetism or mesmerism is another one. And so I think what is happening is a secularization of worldview, and that involves a a set of basically enlightened attitudes at a time when the church is losing its monopoly on the faith of people. You can't measure the extent of the loss, but there are many other episodes, Jansenism being one of them, the destruction of the Jesuit order being another, that suggest a fundamental shift in worldview that is taking hold of ordinary people by the 1780s. And then another major event that happens at around the same sort of time is the American Revolution and the American Revolutionary War, which France is is fairly heavily involved in. What kind of blowback is there in Paris to the events across the Atlantic? I've studied that in some detail. Of course, I'm an American myself, and my first interest in French history began by trying to trace Jefferson through French society when he was ambassador of the New Republic. At first, you know, the American War did not ignite a huge enthusiasm until it began to be clear that uh, the tide was turning against Britain. And all of the humiliations of the previous two wars, the War of the Austrian Succession, the Seven Years' War, came to a head. And there was a tremendous enthusiasm for Lafayette, this young fellow who'd hired his own uh, ship and went to join the forces of Washington, was wounded, uh, showed a great deal of bravery, came back to raise more money, spent a lot of time with Benjamin Franklin, who was then representing the colonies. And Franklin captured the imagination of Parisians in an extraordinary way. He's a great scientist, but he's a man of the people, a former printer, that is someone who worked with his hands. Franklin had a genius for touching chords in public opinion. And so this pro-American sentiment, which is also anti-British, began to grow. And with the victories, it grew more and more. And this war had been very expensive for France, hadn't it? I mean, How did they try to claw back some of the money that had been spent? (laughs) Well, France's intervention in the American war uh, produced 
virtual bankruptcy. I mean, it was a disaster for the Treasury. The debt was so enormous that it could not be repaid without a fundamental refinancing of the whole economic system of France. And to do that, you had to levy new taxes. There was an attempt in 1771 to transform the taxation system so that everyone would pay, uh, the nobility and the clergy included, and the payments would be based on property, basically land holding and income from the land. At first, it looked as though that system in 1771 could be forced on the French people because the parliaments, their law courts, but with a great deal of political power, had opposed it and then were virtually abolished by the minister of Maupeou. However, from 1771 until 1774, when Louis XV finally died, it seemed to be taking, but Louis XVI made a crucial decision to recall the old parliaments, which had been abolished, the debt did not go away, and then after the American War, it became truly unmanageable. So that precipitates a crisis. In 1787, the finance minister, Calon, calls what the Assembly of Notables, that's a group of the elite, to try to persuade them to accept a new taxation system based on a equal land tax and a stamp tax. They dig in their heels, refuse, and ultimately he's forced to resign. And there's another explosion of pamphlet literature, Coloniana, like the Mopoana of 1771. And it's clear that public opinion now is simply unwilling to accept new taxes. There are more episodes that continue. The one that really precipitates the fall of the government is an attempt to use this same land tax called a subvention territoriale by the minister Lomenie de Brienne and his finance minister Lamoignon, and they fail again. In fact, when they do fail, and I find this a very interesting thing, they're dismissed, and their dismissal first of Brienne in August 1788 and then of La in September is accompanied by an explosion of popular joy. And that's something I think that's important to study because what I'm dealing with are attitudes and the perception of events as well as the events themselves. So there were demonstrations everywhere in Paris and these demonstrations are fascinating because they're theatrical. They take the form of carnival celebration. So the ministers are dressed up as straw men, gigantic mannequins with uh, wigs and robes and that clearly indicate who they are. They're paraded around, uh, especially the center in the Ile de la Cité. They're forced to bend before the statue of Henry IV at the Pont Neuf, who Henry is considered a champion of the people, to beg forgiveness. Uh, they are then put on trial. There's a prosecuting attorney and a confessor. They are declared guilty, and then they're burned in enormous bonfires. This happens several times, and in each time, a crowd celebrates at the center of not far from the Palais Royal in the, in the Place Dauphine, and the police have to intervene. 
But when the police intervene, they are opposed and fights break out. You get major riots. And from this epicenter of rioting, uh, working people come in from the Faubourg, especially the Faubourg Saint-Antoine. And for a while, Paris is in the hands of the crowd. And a lot of people are killed and wounded. With the first, uh, in August, there were 20 deaths. In September, 80 deaths, hundreds and hundreds of people wounded. And so you've got explosions. And the name for the explosions is also very interesting. They are known not just as riots, but as émotions populaires, popular emotions. Because what's being ignited is not just violence, but a, a kind of emotional fury that is very widespread and very deep. My point is that if you follow the way events are perceived and reported, what you sense is a growing consciousness that the system itself is evil, is corrupt, is illegitimate. And this sense of illegitimacy um, is cumulative so that over 40 years, finally, uh, by the September of 1788, the Parisians are ready to take the great leap into revolution. So it's fair to say then that there was a lot of popular support behind the events of 1789. Absolutely. It, it wasn't just support. They, they made 1789. I mean, the, the Parisians themselves rose in revolt. It's true that they won over the Garde Nationale, a lot of the soldiers stationed there, and this was indeed crucial. And there are lots of other factors, including the price of bread, which had reached a terrible height, and was crucial for the actual nourishment of Parisians. So you've got the price of bread, you've got the financial crisis, uh, you've got lots of uh, tension directed against the court. There are many, many factors. But my argument is that the crucial ingredient, which I think has not been adequately studied by other historians, is the information system itself. You know, we say today, we live in an information society, which is true, but it's also misleading because there's nothing new about that. Every society was an information society each in its own way and according to its own media. And my book is an attempt to reconstruct the information society of Paris in the 18th century and to show how not just events, but the perception events penetrated into the population uh, through media such as not just pamphlets and books, but songs and demonstrations and riots rumors. Uh, there's a lot of word of mouth, which is mixed in with a printed word. And this combination of all of the media develops in such a way that it's creating a kind of consciousness, a collective consciousness, which I call the revolutionary temper. So, so as you say, this was an age of information, and that's a really important aspect of your book. But was there also an element of misinformation here as well? Was there a fake news problem then that we also encounter now? Absolutely. I mean, I mentioned the example of the uh, riots against kidnappings by the police. Now, the point is there were actual kidnappings, but not on a gigantic scale. However, people believed 
that they were widespread. They believed that the kidnapped children would be shipped off to Mississippi. They believed that some of them would be drained of their blood to make a bloodbath for a prince that was suffering some kind of disease of the blood. I mean, all of this is a sort of mythological reworking of the events themselves. And similarly, with the diamond necklace affair, there's the word spreads that maybe the queen is having a, an affair with the cardinal. And when you take the royal mistresses one after another, the misinformation is really quite spectacular, but it's not all wrong. And so the police are very aware of this. As I say, they had informants in all of the cafes and the marketplaces of Paris, and they're worried about misinformation. So they try to stop rumors as they develop. And you've got uh, so-called nouvellistes or uh, newsmongers, people who gather information and then write it down on little scraps of paper. They go to certain benches in the Luxembourg Gardens or the gardens of the Palais Royal, the Tuileries, the cafes. They exchange these bits of little notes. Uh, I've seen many of them in the archives of the Bastille, where someone scribbles down a rumor. And then sometimes the notes are combined into narratives or underground news sheets. And uh, there are many examples of these. There were, I think, 36 of them that were circulating underground manuscript newspapers uh, by in the 1780s. And finally, they're put in print. The best example is the nouvelle about the République des Lettres, so-called Mémoire Secret, which runs to 36 volumes, entries for almost every day. So, yes, there is misinformation. The misinformation passes through the channels of communication, rumors, written, handwritten notes, news sheets that are also manuscript, and finally the printed word. So, yes, misinformation is crucial, so crucial that the uh, the police, uh, which, which has its own inspectors of the book trade and its own spies, is highly conscious of this because it matters. Now, we know how the French Revolution ultimately ended, but on the streets of Paris in 1789, do we know what the people were hoping would happen, what they thought would happen? I don't think they had a clear vision of what the future would be. There is an enormous pamphlet literature. The most famous pamphlet is What is the Third Estate by the Abbé Sieyès. It's published in the beginning of January 1789. It's surrounded by hundreds of other pamphlets. We have the so-called Cahier de Doléances, in which people were invited by the king to express their complaints, their, their objections, their worries. We have a lot of information, but none of it indicates the course that the revolution would take. What it does suggest is a conviction, I'm now talking especially about Paris, that the system itself must change. And so when the king is forced to call the Estates General, the Estates General is not some kind of gimmick. It is understood as the nation being assembled. And the question is, would the crown, would the government accept a shift of power to the nation itself? This is discussed uh, in the pamphlets, but also in the speeches made after the Estates General first meets. 
And then, of course, a crisis develops because it's clear that the king and his advisors, the government, the ministers, are not really willing to accept a fundamental transfer of power, which involves, among other things, the consent to taxation uh, by a representative assembly of the people. And so you've got various episodes, which I recount in the first months of 1789. The Estates General declares itself to be a national assembly. The question is, will the king accept that? And it looks as though he's going to call in troops to dissolve the National Assembly and and rule by the power of the bayonet, even though he can't pay his debts. And it's after that threat that uh, the people uh, storm the Bastille. The key event that triggers it is the dismissal of Necker, the Minister of Finance, who was taken at the time to favor the people. Once he is dismissed, there is a conviction that we are now facing naked power, power coming out the barrel of a gun, power in the shape of bayonets. Bayonets are very present in the general imagination of the people. And so there is a call to seize arms and storm the Bastille. Now, that doesn't mean that Anyone knew what would happen afterwards. And of course, I'm not writing a history of the revolution. I do a sketch of what I take to be the basic character of the revolution. But historians of the revolution disagree as to how events developed and what the ultimate character of the system was between 1789 and 1799. My own view is that there was a lot of... Unanticipated consequences. Um, that there was, a, there are many turning points. That the revolution was not predetermined either by some kind of philosophical discourse, as people like François Furet said, or by some inevitable class conflict. I think it was a matter of responding to decisions and influences especially the nationalization of church land, the civil constitution of the clergy, and for me, above all, the declaration of war in April 1792, which involved the revolution in a desperate struggle against all of the other old regimes of Europe, conditions which made it possible for the terror to develop. That was Robert Danton. The Revolutionary Temper, Paris, 1748 to 1789, is out now, published by Alan Lane. And if you'd like to know more about the French Revolution's legacy, check out In Our Times podcast episode on this, available now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.